come from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7, verses 3 through 13. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If you do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel. And the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomforted them. And they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shem and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Good morning. So glad that you're here today. It's always a blessing to be able to come out and worship God together. And so we're thankful that you're here for worship this morning. It has already been mentioned going to be a busy day. Lots of great things going on. Thankful, though, that you're here. We're in a series asking the question, what about God? And in that series, we're looking at some of the attributes of God, looking back to, to, to glean some things that can help us understand God, help us live before God. And so today, as we start to, uh, to, to launch us, I'm going to share an excerpt from a third grader, an eight-year-old out in California. Uh, he was given an, uh, an assignment and asked to explain God. And I'm going to read you just part of what this eight-year-old this eight said. He said, one of God's main jobs is making people. He makes them to replace the ones that die so there will be enough people to take care of things on earth. 
He doesn't make grown-ups, just babies. I think that's because they're smaller and easier to make. That way, he doesn't have to take up his valuable time teaching them to talk and walk. He can just leave that to mothers and fathers. God's second most important job is listening to prayers. An awful lot of this goes on since some people, like preachers and things, pray at times besides bedtime. Jesus is God's Son. He used to do all the hard work like walking on water and performing miracles and trying to teach the people who didn't want to learn about God. They finally got tired of Him preaching to them and they crucified Him. But He was good and kind like His Father and told His Father and they didn't know what they were doing and to forgive them and God said, okay. His dad, God, appreciated everything he had done and all his hard work on earth, so he told him he didn't have to go out on the road anymore. He could stay in heaven. So he did. And now he helps his dad out by listening to prayers and seeing things which are important for God to take care of and which ones he can take care of himself without having to bother God. Like a secretary, only more important. You can pray anytime you want and they're sure to hear you because they got it worked out so one of them is on duty at all times. You should always go to church on Sunday because it makes God happy. And if there's anybody you want to make happy, it's God. If you don't believe in God, you'll be very lonely because your parents can't go everywhere with you like to camp, but God can. It's good to know He's around when you're scared in the dark or when you can't swim very good and you get thrown into the real deep water by the big kids. But you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. I figure God put me here and He can take me back anytime He pleases and that's why I believe in God. You've got to love the thought process for an eight-year-old. And I love the humor and I love the innocence and I'm leading with that for a couple of reasons this morning. Uh, this young man, he, he kind of takes a high-level look at God and a high-level look at what God has done. And one of the things I want to mention as we start is coming up September 20th, this congregation, the Savannah family, we're going to start thinking about the story. We're going to study through the story, the idea that this opportunity to tie our personal Bible study time, to tie our Bible class time on Sunday mornings, to tie our morning uh, preaching of the Word, all from the same area of Scripture. And so I hope you'll be thinking about that. I hope you'll be praying about that. If you don't have a copy yet of the story, uh, I hope you'll secure one of those. Uh, Ryan Miller's done a lot of work in putting this together, and so if you need copies and don't have that, see him. He can get you hooked up. But I hope you'll be praying about that. I hope you'll be thinking about that. It's really going to be good. The other reason that I like what this eight-year-old wrote, he said something at the end that's kind of a springboard into this revival that Samuel's leading in 1 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. The young man made the statement, he said, but you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. And what we're going to see as we think about Israel and as we think about them needing to find their way back to God, one of the problems that they've got going on is they're thinking about what God or what they want God to do for them, but they find out that God can't be manipulated. And so we use them this morning. Now, I'm thankful for the songs we've been singing, the songs that are focusing us on thinking about our hearts. You may remember back in the spring we studied Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, the idea that God wants you and He wants me to love Him with our, all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind. And, and we talked that day about being in the relentless pursuit of all. And see, I believe we need to be frequently reminded about how important it is to surrender our heart to Him. Because it's so easy to get caught up in 
maybe trying to do all the right things without being the right kind of people. If I can just make sure I'm in church, or if I can say the right things and avoid saying the wrong things, or if I can claim Him in my life so that He'll bless me, I'm claiming Him, but somehow maybe I'm not fully invested in the relationship. You see what I'm trying to illustrate. And so today we see Samuel, and he's going to illustrate the point for us. He's going to lead a revival. But he has to wait a while to do that because when, when he first becomes the prophet, when he befer, first becomes the guy, Israel's not invested and they're not ready yet. And so one of the questions I want us to be asking as we study today, and it ought to happen every time we're in Scripture, but as we think about this narrative, as we think about what's going on here, the question should always be, as I read, what does this tell me about God? What can I learn about God from this passage of Scripture? Well, let's do some background. Bad things are happening for Israel. Priestly leadership has become very corrupt. You remember Eli? He had a couple of sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They become priests. And these two guys, if you want a, uh, if you want a bad day in Scripture written about you, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, beginning of verse 13, this is not what you want God to weigh in and say about you. The Bible says there, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. That's a lot to say about two guys. They have a role. They have a responsibility. They are religious leaders. They are priests. It is their job to make sacrifice, to conduct worship, to do all these things. And God says these guys are worthless. And one of the reasons they're worthless is because they've got this responsibility, but they don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. And so they've perverted the worship. They're taking advantage of the people who come to worship. And if people try to call them on that and point out that they're, that they're not doing this the right way, they're actually threatening people physically. And so God's upset. And so God's ready to pass judgment. In fact, uh, the Bible says in chapter 2, verse 17 of 1 Samuel, that, that this, thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. They despised it. They had no respect for it. They regarded it as unimportant. And so God passes judgment. God's upset with them. God is upset with Eli because Eli knows these things are going on. It's perverted worship. It is sexual misconduct in the temple. It is a reminder that power and position can corrupt. And so Eli knows about it. And Eli's kind of scolded them a little bit and says, I'm hearing things about you boys and this shouldn't be going on. But he doesn't stop it. And so in verse 29 of the chapter, the Bible says this, and this is God talking to Eli, Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I've commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? And, and so in other words, God's saying, because you haven't stopped this, because you haven't stopped them, you're actually honoring them above me, and it's got to stop. And so when you get to verse 30, some very serious words from God, the Bible says, Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. 
You'll see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I'll not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, on the same day both of them will die. This tells us something about God. God had made a promise. God had made an agreement. But God is now repealing that promise. He's repealing that uh, agreement. God is ready to head in a different direction. And it's, it's not because of God. It's because of Eli. It's because of his sons. It's because of what they didn't do, who they weren't trying to be. And see, when we see things like that going on, it ought to prompt some questions within us. As I think about my role in honoring God as a Christian, will Philip Goad honor God? Will I honor God above everything? Will I honor God above everyone? See, those are good self-exam questions because they didn't honor God and so there's a price to be paid. And so in the meantime, as all of this is happening, uh, the call for a prophet goes out and Samuel becomes the guy. And you remember as a young boy, he's sleeping or trying to sleep and God keeps calling him and he keeps running to Eli. And Eli finally says, that's God calling you. And so the next time that he calls you, you need to say, you know, your servant, listen, speak to me. And so then God gives Samuel his first message. And Samuel doesn't even want to share it because it's God saying to Samuel, I'm about to carry out what I've promised against Eli. And so you get to the beginning of chapter 4 here in verse Samuel, and what you find out is Israel, they're ready to go out and fight the Philistines. And, and they're ready to go out and fight as God's people. And, and so they go out and do that, but when you see what goes on here in the beginning of the chapter, they, they go out and they fight a battle and... The problems aren't just with their leadership because they go out and 4,000 Israelites are killed. They're defeated. They're defeated soundly. And they come back from the battle and in verse 3 they ask the right question. The Bible says when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? In other words, they didn't give credit to the Philistines for winning that battle. They're asking the right question. They realize that they lost because God, for whatever reason, had not shown up. And so they ask the right question, but they do not walk away with the right answer. Their answer is, well, evidently we didn't do something right. Evidently there was something we should have done that we didn't do. And then they begin to think about it, and their answer is, well, we didn't take the ark into battle with us. When we take the ark with us, we always win. And so they bring out the ark. And as it comes into the camp, there's a, there's a cheer. It would be like bringing it into the room. And the room goes crazy. And word even gets back to the Philistines that, hey, they got the ark. And, and in some ways, when you read chapter 4, you almost see more respect for God from the Philistines than you do from Israel because they begin to get a little bit fearful because they know that if God shows up, they're not winning. And so there's another battle. They're trying to manipulate God. Remember our eight-year-old at the beginning, but you shouldn't just always think of what God can do for you. They go out and they fight again. And this time in chapter 4, 30,000 Israelites fall. So it's 4,000. We get out the ark. We bring that with us. 
we still don't have it right because this time we lose 30,000 people. The ark is taken captive. Hophni and Phinehas, as promised, are killed in battle. When Eli gets word about this, you remember the Bible says he's a heavy guy, he's a big guy, he's, in his, he's on his stool or whatever it is, and when he gets word, he falls off, breaks his neck, he dies. The wife of Phineas, she's pregnant, she goes into labor, she gives birth, dies in childbirth. They named the child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. And when you look at chapter 4, verse 10, the Bible says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And you can only imagine what some of the conversations must have been like in those tents during those days. Now, what went wrong? You know, we had the ark. And when we have the ark, when we, we always win when we bring the ark with us. Where is God? You know, where is God gone? He's our God. Where is He? He seems to be absent right now. Does He no longer care? Now, maybe you've been there at some point. But when you look at chapters 5 and 6, and we don't have time to spend a, a great deal thinking about them, but, but God ends up troubling the enemies of Israel because they've taken the ark captive. And even when God is trying to make a point with His own people, you don't, you don't treat the ark that way. You don't take it captive. And so people get sick and bad things happen. And finally they're like, we've got to get rid of this thing. And so they send it back. And by the time you get to the beginning of chapter 7... The, the ark arrives at Kiriath-Jerim. The Bible says the men of Kiriath-Jerim came back and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. From that day the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. The time was long for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What were you doing 20 years ago? That's a long time. 20 years, 1995. What were you doing in 1995? I, you know, we were in Atlanta. That's back when the Braves were good. That's the year that the Braves actually won it all. I remember 1995. I'm actually, I, that, that was the time when I'm, I was warming up to the idea that maybe we were going to leave Atlanta and move to Alabama. And there's been a lot of things happen over the last 20 years. A lot of great things have happened over the last 20 years. There's some decisions I'd love to make differently. Probably you as well. But trying to put some perspective on 20 years, that's a long time. And what Israel's doing at that point, the ark is sitting there. It's doing nothing. There's no worship. They're wringing their hands. Samuel is the prophet, but they're evidently not ready to get back with God. They're lamenting after God. Didn't God used to live in the box? We, we, we thought that He lived there. We, we, you know, we, why did He kill the people who looked inside and He did that? Why isn't He blessing us anymore? Chances are great that they're still talking about that battle 20 years ago. That one where they showed up with the ark and God didn't. And in the meantime, they're under Philistine oppression. 20 years. Let's talk about this revival that Samuel leads in chapter 7. The idea of... He's got to help them understand that God doesn't live in a box. You, you, you get God out of the box. You get God into your heart. You surrender your heart to God. 
It's hard to read this without wondering why did Samuel wait 20 years to speak up? And I believe that it it had to have to do with the idea that their hearts weren't ready yet to receive the Word that he was going to share with them. And perhaps their 20 years of lamenting God, perhaps that's the softening process that their hearts needed because he prescribes a remedy. You know, sometimes we try to... Maybe you'll see a young child and they'll do things to try to get their dad's attention, their parents' attention. They'll show out, they'll do crazy stuff. And and a lot of times it's all for, you know, I want some attention here. And Israel didn't need to do any of those things. What Samuel's going to explain to them, if you want God's attention, if you want God's favor, if you want want God to show up, you've got to get your heart right. And so notice... Again, from what's been read, notice the beginning of verse 3 and on through verse 6. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If ye return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve Him alone. See, they begin to, they're serving idols in the meantime. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I'll pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. It's worth noting here, for all the bad that had occurred, the the corrupt leadership, the perverted worship, the the 20 years of hand-wringing, the 20 years of, uh, of not getting anything done right, there was still a way back. And see, that's a really good message for 2015, for the day that we live in, the times that we live in. There may be some valleys in our lives. There may be some times where we're not getting it right. There may be some times where we're blaming God instead of trusting God. But at the point, we're ready to come back. We learn from God that there's always a way. Samuel says, if you return, and there's an implication there, the people had left God. God is never far away. Acts 17, verse 27. Paul tried to explain that to the folks on Mars Hill. I can leave God, but He won't walk away from me. If my relationship with God is broken, it's always my fault. It's never God's fault. And time and time again in the Bible, the the promise is there. Hebrews 13, verse 5, I'll never desert you, nor will I forsake you. We talked about John chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago where Jesus says that that my people, my sheep, they cannot be snatched out of my hand. Nobody can take them away from me. I love Luke 15. I love the prodigal son. I love the idea that one of the things we learned there is that, hey, when that son was ready to come home, his father was watching, he was waiting, he wanted that to happen. And see, that's the case today. If I'm away, if things aren't right, there's a God and He's still waiting and He's still watching. He just wants me to soften my heart. And so anytime God seems distant, and we probably all have those days, anytime God seems distant, I need to be asking myself, if He seems distant, does this mean that I need to return to Him? Have I somehow wandered away from Him? Have I walked away? He says, if you return with all your heart. It's a commentary on repentance. 
The idea of repenting, it's not a simple feeling of remorse. It's not a simple feeling of sorrow. It involves this radical turn where I am turning back to God. I'm recognizing Him as God. Bill Arnold said it's impossible to painfully, to be painfully sorry for something we've done, but make no effort to stop the painful action. Repentance is an idea that I'm not living the way I lived before. I'm turning back to God. He says, with the entire heart. Should a wife who is devoted to her husband be devoted to her husband exclusively or will the husband be okay with it if she's partially devoted to him and then maybe partially devoted to some of the other guys she's dated in the past? It's a ridiculous question, isn't it? But one of the things, one of the comparisons that's made over and over in Scripture when God's people are not right with Him, when God's people have walked away, one of the recurring analogies God uses is the idea that my people are like a wife that's cheating on me. He says, come back with the entire heart. On my terms. Get rid of the idolatry. See, when God looks at my life, we don't do idols today. I, I don't think I could walk into any one of your homes and see an idol that you bow down to and worship. And you wouldn't find one in mine either. But we do have this ability sometimes to raise up some idols in our lives, some things that take priority in our lives that sometimes put God in the back seat or put God in second place. Sometimes it's my stuff, the things that I own, the, the things that I, I hold dear to me. Maybe it's those things. Maybe it's hobbies. Maybe it's my interests. Anything that commands a higher place in my life than my relationship with God becomes an idol. And notice... For the children of Israel, it's a time of prayer. Samuel's praying on their behalf. It's a time of fasting, and I know we don't talk a lot about that today. And it's a time of confession. They come back and the statement is, we have sinned against the Lord. They're drawing water. They're pouring it out before the Lord. It's symbolic of repentance. Symbolic of their troubled state, their desire to be right with God again. In other words, they poured out their heart like water in penitence before the Lord. This time, after that, they're ready for battle again. And so as they launch into battle, they consult God first. As you see that going on in the text, they consult God first before they go into battle. And, and then when the Philistines show up, they're actually a little afraid. They, they say to Samuel, don't stop praying. I, I know you prayed once, but don't stop praying on our behalf because we still need some help here. And God shows up. And God routes the Philistines. We're asking the question, what about God? And as we look at these great narratives of Scripture, see, we serve the same God. We're in relationship with the same God. That same God is the one who gave His Son for us. And so the question is, do I attempt to keep God in a box today where when I do the right blessing or take the right actions, God will bless me? Do I think that way? Or is my thought process all about surrendering every part of my life to Him? Am I devoted to God in the way that He wants me to be a wholehearted devotion? Or could it be that there's some idolatry that's preventing my heart from fully belonging to God? Is there some idolatry that I need to purge from my life? Because see, God, time and time again in Scripture, I don't accept second place. I'm either first 
or I'm nothing. I'm either first or you hate me. Do we try to bring God out only when we need Him? In other words, do I try to manipulate God? Do I try to use God on my terms? Israel brought out the ark not because they wanted relationship, but because they wanted to win. Is there anything that I need to confess to God? And and that might be private confession where I get on my knees at home and I'm confessing something to God that's, that's prevented me from devoting my heart to Him. Is there something that I need to confess publicly? Do you know for a fact that your heart is what it needs to be today, wholly devoted to God? Lonnie Jones has a way of saying things that are easy to remember and that are so powerful. Lonnie Jones said, Spiritual people act religious even when no one else is watching. The idea that I am who I am, whether there's a crowd or whether it's just me. See, God knows the heart and that's what it all comes down to. And so, your walk with God today, is it what it needs to be? I love what the eight-year-old said, but you shouldn't just always ask God or think of what God can do for you. God's already done a lot. He's already done everything that He needs to do. He did send that Son. He sent that Son so that as we surrender, as we act in obedience as our our third grade today, they quoted those Scriptures for us. As we obey Him, then we belong to Him. He's done everything He needs to do, but He can continue to do more. But He wants my heart and He wants yours. Today, if your heart doesn't belong to Him, again, it may be a private response that you make at home. It may be that you need to step aside with one of the shepherds today and ask one of the shepherds to pray with you and for you. It may be that you want your church family praying for you. It may be that you need to begin your walk with God by being immersed into Christ. If you have a need today, please let that be known while we stand and while we sing. Spirit within me, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take
Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew right spirit within me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. If you will, please be seated. We do have one additional announcement this morning before we close in prayer. I would like to mention, though, uh, one opportunity that we failed to mention this morning is our nursing home singing that will be taking place at 2 o'clock. We beg you to be involved in at least one of the great things that we have going on this afternoon and uh, pray for you. Have a great week. First of all, thank you for being with us today. If you're visiting with us, we certainly do hope that your heart has been touched today and that you'll want to come back and be with us again. Thank you, Bradley and Philip, for leading us in such a fine way this morning. I stand before you this morning with a very, very heavy heart, one that is saddened by what I'm about to tell you. This past Wednesday night, Don Dorn and his entire family met with us, expressing us being the rest of the elders, expressing that they had reached a point in their life that Don needed to step down as an elder of this congregation. While brokenhearted and saddened, the eldership certainly understood the load that Don and his family are carrying at this time. And we accept that resignation with deep sadness. Don told me not to say much, just say what I've just said and sit down. But he knows I can't do that. You know, in the tw- but I will be short, Don. In the 24 years that Sheila and I have been a part of this congregation, I don't know anybody that's given more to this church than Don Dorn and his family. I don't know anybody that loves the Lord more than they do. But we understand that life can be hard and life can be tough. And sometimes even Jesus had to lighten the load and go take a break. As Don and Tammy do that, we ask that you pray for them every day that they might be strengthened and that they might be refreshed. And I ask you, before you leave today, that you let them know how much you love them and how much you care for them and how much you appreciate what they've done for this church. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we pray for clean hearts. We've been reminded today that that's all you ask of us. A clean, obedient heart that loves you more than life. Father, as we leave this place today, we pray that we can all live a life 
that demonstrates just that. Father, as we leave, we, we are leaving with saddened hearts because of the decision that Don and Tammy have had to make. And Father, we, we know how much you love them. We know how much we love them. And we want you to help us to let them know that you love them, that we love them, and that we will be there for them. Father, as we think about them, we think about their family and how much they love their children, their grandchildren, how much they've given to other people's children, and we just ask that you give back to them. Father, as we part from this place, please hear our hearts sing. A song of praise to you that is so worthy. One that rings through this community. That makes others say, who are these people? And help us to lead them to you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.